Would you please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Luke, the 19th chapter, beginning with verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's one right there in the pew in front of you, a little black book, and Luke is the third gospel in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's the 19th chapter, beginning with verse 1. I want to read this morning the account of a man being born again by the Spirit of God. You all know that uh, many people are born again in many different ways. And probably most of us think that it's the norm, that usually the way people are born again is that they're raised in a Christian family and that as they grow up, they try to be holy. They try to live in a way that first pleases their parents because it's hard for tiny little children to understand who God is. But then as they develop, you end up seeing them begin to understand that there is a God who made them and that they have a soul that will never die. And you begin to see them wrestle with the issue of their desire to please God because they realize more than anything, if their parents know God, that their parents want them to please God. And so as they grow, maybe sometimes for years and years, you'll see these children struggling to know who God is and what God wants of them and how they can be holy. And then, and it can come at any, a number of different times, you'll see as you're a parent watching them that there comes a time when they begin to understand that they can never be good enough for God. And that the point is that Jesus has loved them so much that he has given them his death, his blood, to wash them clean. And a light comes on in them. And then they realize why the answer to every question as they've been growing up is Jesus. (laughs) They realize why their parents kept telling them over and over again that They were to look to Jesus. They realized why they celebrated Good Friday, the death on the cross of Jesus. Everything points to Jesus. And so this child will come to the point where he or she will confess that they're a sinner and that they need Jesus. And they'll look to Jesus for salvation, for forgiveness of their sins. And they become a a Christian. That's one kind of Christian. There's another kind of Christian, and that's the kind we're going to look at this morning. Completely different. Somebody who grew up uh, not having parents that led them to Jesus, uh, often not even knowing why they had guilt, not really knowing that God has laws, just sensing that inside something wasn't right. Um, But not knowing exactly why those feelings were there, they, they lived a normal what we might call a normal pagan life. You know, they lived as they saw best to live. And it seemed the thing to do was to live like other people lived. And so their life was not holy at all. In fact, their life was a life of great sin. Uh, Now that's the account that I want us to read this morning. It's the account of a man named Zacchaeus. And we read it in verses 1 to 10 of Luke chapter 19. Let us hear the word of God. It is eternally true. Jesus, it's referring to when it says, He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. 
Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbing up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. This is the word of God. Now, if you look at this passage and you look at it in connection with what's before it and after it in the book of Luke, and if you assume that Luke, the doctor who wrote this book, uh, had a flow to his writing, then you'll take into account where this story appears and you'll see that as you get into the end of chapter 19, you have the triumphal entry. What we celebrate is Palm Sunday when Jesus entered Jerusalem and everybody made a big deal out of him. All right, He, was, he entered as a king. And then you'll see that Jesus cleanses the temple and tells some parables. And then you'll see that very soon you've got the Passover and then the Lord's Supper and then the crucifixion, the Garden of Gethsemane. So Jesus is now going to Jerusalem And he's about to do the work of dying for the sins of all of those the Father would give him. And so we have at the beginning of chapter 19, part of the journey into Jerusalem where Jesus is beginning to prepare to die for sinners. And what we see here is that the Jews by this time have really turned away from him. Uh, His own people have not accepted him. He's been hated. He's been... Uh, the subject of great jealousy. He has been turned against by uh, God's people. And so as we come into Jerusalem through Jericho, as we see him making this journey, what we see is Jesus becoming more and more uh, alienated from and turning more and more to those who are scorned by the righteous people. All right? Now... It says at the beginning of our text that Jesus came into Jericho. He's on his last trip to Jerusalem. He has about six hours of walking left before he gets into Jerusalem. Now, Jericho was an important city. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian who lived at the time, tells us about Jericho that it was actually the richest city in the country. And the reason for this was it was on the main route and it was right where the Jordan River had its main crossing. So if you think of the wealth of the time largely being the product of trade, and you understand it's like Chicago developing at the very bottom of Lake Michigan or New York. Why do cities become rich? Well, because they're at the matrix where the railroads or the ships, whatever it is, everything comes together. And you know when they built the railroads in our country back in two centuries ago, you know that there were great fights over where the railroads would go because towns knew if they didn't get a railroad, it could mean the end of their town. Well, Jericho didn't get a railroad, it got a river. 
And so in Jericho, it had great wealth. Not only did it have great wealth, but especially the tax collectors had great wealth. And the reason is tax collectors made a living off of trade. So if they were in the richest trade center, then the people that went and taxed the trade would have been very, very wealthy. So Zacchaeus was not just a tax collector. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. And that would be a good place to be if you were a tax collector. Now, what else do we know about Jericho? Well, this is the city that Zacchaeus lived in, and it is the city that he collected taxes in. But we know something else about Jericho, and that is that this city was very close to Bethany. And we know that Bethany was the home of a man named Lazarus. Now, don't you wonder, as you read this story, why is it that everybody is gathered along the street to see Jesus? We look back at it and we think, well, if Jesus came to Bloomington, I'd stand at the street to see him. But remember, Jesus had not been crucified yet. Jesus had not been raised from the dead. And nobody had a book of his deeds. So what caused all of these people? And it must have been, it must have been quite a crowd. Because if Zacchaeus had to climb a tree to see Jesus, that means it wasn't just a single row of people. There were probably multiple rows of people for a short man not to find some hole to look through. All right. Well, right nearby is Bethany. And if we remember about this man Lazarus, we remember that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, no matter how much Neil Armstrong did a wonderful thing, or was the man that our nation did a wonderful thing putting up on the moon? Imagine this. Imagine if Neil Armstrong had raised a man from the dead. Everybody's watching. Everybody was there for the burial. There's no confusion on anybody's part. His sisters are angry because Jesus didn't come soon enough to heal him. Nobody has any hope. And then Jesus, with everybody watching, not in the middle of the night, he goes to the, to the grave and he says what? He says, Lazarus, come out! And out of the grave comes a dead man. Now, if that had happened in Ellettsville, and a little while later, the man that had done that showed up walking through Bloomington, you can understand why the crowds just lined the street. Who is this man? He's a great man. He raises people from the dead. And then the stories begin to circulate. You don't need to tell stories about Lazarus. This is real. This is Ellettsville. This is Bloomington. But what about some of the other things? And then you find out that he healed the demoniac, the Gadarene demoniac, that this guy that was chained up uh, in the cemetery, that was ranted and raved and cut himself, all of a sudden became perfectly sane, had no more torments, and was the picture of respectability. Well, that's pretty radical. And you begin to hear about when there were 5,000, that he fed them with just, just a little bit of fish and a little bit of bread, and that there were baskets left over afterwards. And these stories begin to circulate. Now, notice, they don't tell the stories of Matthew, another tax collector, who Jesus said, follow me, and Matthew got up and followed him. Now, which is the greater miracle? That the demoniac became sane or that a tax collector gave up his lucrative business to follow Jesus. But the stories are being told. And they find out that he made a man who was blind able to see. He healed his vision. 
And then they find out that he made the lame able to walk. And then they find out that it's kind of curious. Oftentimes, he would hang out with prostitutes and tax collectors. Then they find out that the Jewish religious leaders don't really like him. In fact, they hate him. Well, more and more you begin to see that Jesus is somebody that you would, you'd come out of, you'd come out of the woodwork to see Jesus. Who is this man? Who is this man? And what is he doing here in Jericho? And what will he do in Jericho? If he raised Lazarus from the dead, why is he coming to Jericho? And so it's perfectly understandable that everyone who was anything was there. You can imagine if you were a child who had just disobeyed your mother and your mother said to you, that's it, you're grounded. You may not come and see Jesus as he goes through town. I mean, it would be that level of intensity. Uh, Every person in that town wanted to see Jesus. Now, here's Zacchaeus. And what's Zacchaeus like? Well, we all know from... If we ever went to vacation Bible school, we know one thing about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. If you never heard that song... All the rest of us have heard that song. (laughs) A wee little man was he. He climbed up into a sycamore tree. Zacchaeus was short. Now, if you put his height together with a bunch of other things, you'll see that this was a man who had nothing really to be proud of. Um, There's a quote by Martin Luther. And it goes like this. He says, God often gives riches... And I won't use his exact language because Martin Luther was very earthy. But he says, it's, it's amazing how God often gives riches to those people that he gives nothing else to. And that would be Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus had about one thing, and that was he was a very wealthy man because he was the chief tax collector. Now, what was, what was the meaning of his tax collecting? Well... As a tax collector, um, you were at the bottom. In fact, the Jews looked at you as being right next to adulterers and murderers. That's how much they hated tax collectors. Now, why did they hate tax collectors? Well, none of us like paying taxes, right? We do it. We feel it's our duty, but we don't like it. And yet, when we pay taxes, you can make the case that my taxes help my mother's Healthcare, right? I mean, it's not, it doesn't happen like that, but you can at least make the case that you're going to benefit from your taxes. But Jews didn't benefit from their taxes because Jews were not paying taxes to their own chosen government that they got to vote on every November or every two Novembers or whenever it is. All right? They were paying taxes to a foreign oppressor, they were ta- paying taxes to the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was not clean to Jews. Jews hated it. Jews felt about the Roman Empire about the way people in Iraq probably feel about America right now. Now imagine that there are some Iraq men who collect taxes for the United States. 
And imagine that the way they do their work well is that they know all the hidden secrets of their townsmen. They know which part of the river people go across to escape the part of the river where the tax man sits. They know where the smuggling goes. They know who owns a shop at the backside of the shop where the real money is made. They know what son works for the father but lives out in the country and rarely shows his face. You see, every method that there was to escape paying taxes to Rome, it was Zacchaeus' job to know that method. And so he wasn't just collecting taxes for Rome, but he was trading on his intimate knowledge of all of his neighbors and loved ones. Do you understand this? What he really was is he was a betrayer. He was a betrayer of his own family and his own neighbors and his own people. Now do you understand why Zacchaeus would be looked at as like a murderer and an adulterer? And it wasn't just true of Zacchaeus, it was true of all tax collectors. That's how they looked at them. Tax collectors were not allowed to sit on a jury. They weren't allowed to judge anybody. Their witness, their testimony was not allowed to be accepted in a court of law. They weren't trustworthy. Tax collectors uh, were considered uh, to be just completely awful. Uh, they were not allowed to have any social connections with respectable people. They were disqualified from being uh, a member of the synagogue, which was the center of Jewish life. In other words, they couldn't be members of churches. And their families were treated the same way. So this is Zacchaeus. Um, now you add to that the fact that not only was it bad to be tax collecting, but um, from, 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 from what John the Baptist says when, when he talks about these things, we know that tax collectors often charge more than they ought to. They, they, didn't, they weren't limited. It's very interesting. <laughs> this last week, this last week, um, let, let, let me back up a second and say that um, over the last couple of years, our church has moved to a form of uh, health care where we have a medical savings plan. Now, I want you to know, I do my own taxes, all right? And when I hit the forms, the IRS forms for the medical savings plans, I hit my limit. <laughs> I thought, I am not going to fill out one more form. I mean, it was like my, my life was being swallowed by tax forms. And I knew that I wouldn't have to pay any money on the taxes, that even if they audited me, I'd be fine because I wasn't escaping any taxes. But, I, you know, Rob is probably the only one that's looked at this form. But it's just this mind-numbingly complicated form. So I just said, forget it. Well, then I get a letter from the IRS. And they say to me, now you, you owe, oh, I forget how much. It was like 1500 more in taxes or something like this. And so I went to Rob and said, Rob, how do you do this form? And he laughed and showed me. And had you filed yours? He filed his. See, he's a perfect man. <laughs> I, I reached my limit. Um, so anyhow, I filed this form. And sure enough, you know, you get all these documents back and forth. But sure enough, you know, I didn't have to pay taxes on that. Everything was okay. Now I'm waiting for them because I've actually done that for two years. I'm waiting for them now to tell me I owe for the for last year, and I'm sure I'll hear about it. But here's my point. Why am I telling you this story? Well, I'm telling you this story because this last week I get a letter in the mail from the IRS. And the letter says, 
Dear Mr. Bailey, we would like to know how you felt about your experience with the IRS. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I'm going to tell you something. Zacchaeus never had a letter like that. Zacchaeus never got a letter like that. Nobody was asking whether Zacchaeus was nice. Not only that, but when Zacchaeus collected more taxes than were his due, nobody checked up on him. The power of Rome was absolutely intense. Now, put yourself in the shoes of other Jews living in Jericho and imagine how you feel about Zacchaeus. Do you like him? If you were to list the people that you thought that one day you would see in heaven, would you list Zacchaeus? No, you wouldn't. Who would you list? Well, you'd list the pastors of the churches, the elders, the deacons. You'd list godly older women who were known for their prayer. You'd list everybody before you'd list Zacchaeus. You'd list people that hang out at People's Park before you'd list Zacchaeus. You'd list Bobby Knight before you'd list Zacchaeus, right? You'd list everybody. Now, this is this man. But Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. So what did he do? Well, I like this. I think we all like this about Zacchaeus. He didn't hang out at home thinking, well, who cares? He went. And then he made a fool of himself, didn't he? By climbing a tree. Climbing a tree is not a dignified thing for a very rich man to do. It wasn't then. It isn't today. (laughs) Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, it's inconceivable to us. You go to Washington for the inauguration parade or something, you know, and and there's Bill Gates up in a tree. (laughs) You know, it's not dignified. So they're walking along and Jesus looks up into the tree. And Jesus says what? Jesus says... Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to come to your house. Now, this is the only record we have in the Gospels of Jesus ever inviting himself over to anybody's house. Normally, you think of that as rude, but let me tell you something. Zacchaeus fell out of that tree. Never had his heart felt the joy that it felt at that moment. Why? If you understand this, if I use the expression, he was a scumbag. And Jesus lowered himself to come to his home. Jesus could have chosen the rabbis. He could have chosen the senior rabbis that had other rabbis working for them. He could have chosen the godliest widow in the town. There were... There were many, many righteous people, good people, respectable, upstanding citizens that Jesus could have gone to their house. But Jesus went precisely to the house where no one would, least of all Zacchaeus himself, would expect him to go. Do you remember what Jesus said about himself? Jesus said that the Son of Man came to seek and to save what? That which is lost. Do you remember Jesus also said that he did not come for the righteous, but for whom? For the sinners. We think, oh, that's so sweet. 
But what if you, what if you had been sit, standing there? What if you had been one of the tall people blocking the streets? What if I had been there and I had had a front row position because I'd elbow my way to the front and I'm big, right? And there's this turkey up in the tree and Jesus comes along and I think, well, I know he'll look at me and say, hi, and thank you for your work at Church of the Good Shepherd. I mean, that's disgusting. But that's who we are. And all of a sudden, Jesus looks right by me and he looks up in the tree and he says, Hey, Zacchaeus, come on down. I want to eat at your house. So what would I do? Well, the Bible tells us what I would do. It says it very clearly here. Look at your text. It says in verse 7, As he fell out of the tree... It says in verse 7, when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now, there's so much in that verse. But the first thing I want to point out to us is, don't you ever think that you want the salvation of sinners. You don't want it. What you want is you want your own salvation. Do you understand that? They, it doesn't say one person, and Jesus said, naughty, naughty man. It says they. In other words, the people watching grumbled. Grumbled why? Grumbled because Jesus was showing mercy to a tax collector? Why would you grumble about that? You grumble about that because that's who we are. Because we are always focused on ourselves. We want salvation for me and then my wife and then my children and then my parents. We want Jesus to come to our house. And if he's not going to come to our house, at least he should come to our next door neighbor's house so we can pop in. And if he doesn't come to our next door neighbor's house, then we want him to come to our pastor's house so we can tell people in town that, well, my pastor was the one that had Jesus at his house. But the last thing in the world we want is for notorious sinners to have Jesus come into their house. Why? It's because we're selfish. It's because we're proud. It's because we are sinners. And so the first thing I want to say about this is we need to repent of that. We need to have the heart of Jesus for the tax collector. And not just think, oh, you know, that's true, we need to do that, but then take steps to do it. Didn't Jesus say that when you have people over for dinner, don't have people over that can pay you back, have people over that can't ever do anything for you. Have over the lame and the sick, have over the people that don't smell good. Have the notorious sinners over. Think of what would happen in Bloomington. I'm sorry to get so specific, but think of what would happen at Bloomington if every single Sunday morning a whole ton of invitations. Now, I only use this because we all know it's true, but there are many other things I could use it as an illustration. But think if every Sunday afternoon there wasn't one person in People's Park because they all had invitations to our homes for dinner. I mean, do you know how easy that would be? We could take, like, just the first five rows of this part of the church and we'd be done with People's Park. Well, maybe eight rows, all right? And then what we could work on? Well, we could work on, you know, the, the frat houses that just got kicked out last year, you know? 
And there's always an abundance of them, <laughs> you know. And then I don't know where to go, but I'm sure Michael, my daughter, could tell us where to go next. Now, what if we actually did that? What if we actually had the same focus that Jesus had? Now, that's the first thing I want to say. But the second thing I want to say is, how did Zacchaeus respond to that? This is why we love Zacchaeus. It's just like the woman that says, yes, but even the dogs get the crumbs that fall off the table. Zacchaeus hears them. He knows exactly what they're thinking. He's lived his life having people spit on him. And so now, here Jesus has called him. And he might have thought, well, if Jesus calls me, certainly, you know, they'll look at me and they'll say, well, there must be something deserving in him, you know. Surely, they will rejoice in my good fortune. And they say, why is he going to that scumbag's house? And so what does Zacchaeus do? <laughs> Look at it. Zacchaeus stopped, verse 8. And he said to the Lord, Behold, in other words, look up everybody, watch this. He says, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. In other words, Zacchaeus was willing publicly to demonstrate that he had repented and believed in Jesus. You say, well, it doesn't say he repented and believed in Jesus. I say, oh, come on now. He's a very rich man, chief tax collector. What do you think has happened that says to him, behold, half of my possessions I give to the poor. Do you know what story comes right before this story in the book of Luke? Flip one page back and look at another account. There we have a righteous man, a good upstanding citizen, a good member of a church. Right? It begins with verse 18. The rich young ruler, a ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Zacchaeus never asked any questions. He never opened his mouth with Jesus. All he did was he climbed that sycamore tree. All right? But the rich young ruler, Good master, what must we do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus immediately hacks him off at the knees. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. In other words, you know what it says in Proverbs? It says in Proverbs that it's, it's not criticism, but it's compliments that test a man. Good teacher. And Jesus says, cut it. Just cut it. Okay? And then he says, you know the commandments, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he, the rich young ruler, said, all these things I've kept from my youth. Can you imagine saying that? I've kept all these laws from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, eh, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Well, the people listening there had a comment too. In verse 26, it says, they said, then who can be saved? But he, Jesus said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. So here you've got the rich young ruler, and oh, he's ready for anything, any holiness, any acts. He's, he's there. Good master, what must I do to be saved? Just, 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 just sell everything you have. 
and, and give the money to the poor. And then you have treasure in heaven and then follow me. Didn't happen. Everybody looks at it and says, oh, who on earth could ever do that? How can anybody be saved? And Jesus says, with God, everything is possible. And then just a few verses later, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And here Zacchaeus is, and he climbs up in that tree. He never says a word. The good master, look up here. No, he doesn't say that. He keeps his mouth shut. And Jesus says, I'm going to come to your house today. And he clambers out of the tree, falls out of the tree. And then as he's coming, he hears them say, what are you doing going to that scumbag's house? He says, behold. And what has happened? What's happened is this man has been born again by the power of God. Do you understand that? You know it wasn't his choice. He'd spent his life making his choices, and that's why he was a very wealthy man. That's why he climbed to be the chief tax collector. And yet in that moment, he looked into the eyes of Christ, and what he saw was the forgiveness of God that is offered to all those who repent. And God didn't single out the rich young ruler, did he? He singled out the scorned chief tax collector. And so conversion happens there because Zacchaeus looks to Jesus and he repents. And why does he repent? He repents because he believed in Jesus. You see, he saw in Christ the love of God. And he knew at that moment that the love of God was his life. Not money, not working the system, not providing well for his family. As a matter of fact, he begins to provide well for his family immediately when he gives away half of his wealth and claims that he will give four times the amount he's stolen from anyone. You see, he always thought he was providing for his family before because he was working hard, climbing to the top, and he was very wealthy. But now he provides for his family by giving families the one thing that a family will die without, which is the mercy of God for sinners. Do you understand that? That was the thing Zacchaeus had never had to give his family. But now, all of a sudden, this family said, wait, 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 you know, we were going to go to Harvard with that money. And he turns his back on it, and he says, half of that's gone, and then four times whatever else I've stolen. He says it with everybody listening. He doesn't say, next year I'll come with a plan to fix the past. He says, right now, this is what I'm doing, right? Then he turns and he looks to Jesus and they go to his house and they have one heck of a party. Why? Because one man has been transferred from death to life. Oh, he used to be rich. He used to be a chief tax collector. But now, he's the chief of sinners clinging to Christ for cleansing, for, for, for salvation. Do you understand this? And so what's the, what's the application to us? The application is, if, if Zacchaeus is able to be taken by God and transferred from death to life just in a moment, such that he is able to turn his back on his wealth and admit publicly that he has stolen from people, and admit it right when they're saying, He's nasty! And he says, 
Well, not as nasty. No, he doesn't say that. He says, you're right, and here I'm making it right. Why? Not because he looks in their eyes and sees that they're willing to forgive them. No. But because he looks in Christ's eyes and he sees that Christ is sufficient. Christ will make it up to him. That he will have treasure in heaven if he simply repents and turns to Jesus. So in your life, what is there? You're not a tax collector, but you've had abortions. You're not a tax collector, but you've divorced your third wife. You're not a tax collector, but you're a very, very proper man who sat in church your whole life and listened to the sermons. What is there in your life? And you look at Jesus and you say about Jesus... You say, is Jesus somebody who can accept me as I am and give me forgiveness? And that's the question. And you know what's beautiful about this story? Zacchaeus turned in faith to Jesus. He gave up his money. He humiliated himself publicly. But then what do we see? We see that Jesus says this, Today salvation has come. In other words, eternal life has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now there's something that you might miss there in verse 9. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this man. Is that what it says? Hmm? That's, that's what we think it says. But that's not what it says. It says, Today salvation has come where? To this house. Funny thing. But when a head of a house comes to Jesus, guess what? Jesus comes to that house. You know, I think of, I can think of many of you, and I do as I preach, I think of you specifically. And I think of the Downies. <laughs> I think of Lynn hopping on, Lynn's sitting here, and that's why I'm thinking of them, hopping on the bed of her parents and saying, come on, Mommy and Daddy, get up, we're going to go to church. And then Dick DeLong coming and knocking on the window, trying to get them out of bed to go to church. Right? And then God does a wonderful work in Bill's and Judy's heart. And guess what? The family comes to Christ. And you could, many of you, repeat the same story. I think of so many of your homes. And I just plead with you this morning. If Zacchaeus could come to Jesus for mercy, and Jesus could say, today, today, now, salvation has come. To this man and to his house, this can be true for you. So turn to him. Believe in him. Repent. Yeah, all the, all, all the good people will look down their nose at you, but so what? Zacchaeus didn't hurt him, won't hurt you. Just repent and cling to Jesus and love him. Let's pray.